Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? And welcome to Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and for the rest of this episode, I'm going to be speaking backwards. Okay, no, I'm not going to do that. Believe me, I did try. I rehearsed about two sentences, but I came across sounding like the dancing dwarf from Twin Peaks, only somehow even more creepy. Last episode, I covered two issues from the current Black Canary series by Brendan Fletcher and Annie Wu. This time, I'm focusing on a Zatanna story. The first Zatanna story, in fact. Her first published appearance, which occurred in Hawkman issue 4, printed way back in 1964. But before that, I want to give you my history with the character. When I started Flowers and Fishnets, the predecessor to this podcast, I began with not only Black Canary's origin story, but how I discovered the character, and how she developed into one of my favorites. It feels right to do the same thing for Zatanna. Oh, and before I forget, last episode I mentioned there were some problems with accessing Flowers and Fishnuts on iTunes. That is no longer a problem. Thanks to the irredeemable shag, Flowers and Fishnets is readily available on RSS and iTunes, whenever you want to hear the old episodes. But, onto the Mistress of Magic. I first discovered Zatanna on February 2nd, 1993. The reason I know the specific day is because I looked it up on TV.com. That was the date Batman the Animated Series aired the episode titled Zatanna. In that episode, the Dark Knight detective teams up with a beautiful stage magician who has been framed for robbery during one of her magic acts. Aside from introducing a fresh and fun female foil for the caped crusader... Okay, sorry, that is way too much alliteration. The episode also peeled back a little of Batman's history, showing how, before he put on the cape and cowl, Bruce Wayne trained with Zatanna's father, the legendary Zatara. From Zatara, Bruce learned about Legertomane, ventriloquism, escapism, all that good stuff. First impression? I thought Zatanna looked cute and sexy in her tuxedo top and bare legs, but I didn't give her a whole lot of thought beyond that because she never returned to the show, and I honestly thought she was an invention of the animated series. I had no idea that she originated in DC Comics outside of Batman's realm, since I wasn't reading a whole lot of those in the 90s. And even if I had been, Zatanna didn't have much of a presence in comics during the 1990s. I don't think I noticed Zatanna in the comics until I read Green Lantern Rebirth, which wasn't until 2007. And very soon after that, I read Identity Crisis and started exploring more of the back catalog of the Justice League in the Silver and Bronze Age. What I gathered from those stories was that Zatanna was the hero's magic user on retainer. She wasn't as powerful as the Spectre or Dr. Fate, but the Spectre was unpredictable and uncontrollable, and Dr. Fate, more often than not, was simply unavailable. Zatanna was a spellcaster they could manage, and who didn't seem to have any place else to go. But was Zatanna really less powerful, or was she just written that way? That's a question I think I'm going to be asking a lot on this podcast, because Zatanna deserves to be one of the premier DC superheroes. She's frequently relegated to the second, or even third, tier of the Justice League pantheon, and yet her powers ought to make her one of the all-time greats. 
Her command of magic is awesome, but her prominence is undercut by her own career as a stage magician. That makes it seem like her powers are really tricks, sleight of hand for entertaining kids at parties or bamboozling people at carnivals. But the reality is the stage magician job is just part of Zatanna's disguise. It's as much a cover for her real abilities as Clark Kent's job at the Daily Planet. And I draw that particular comparison for a reason. Superman is one of the most powerful beings in the DC Universe. He has three known weaknesses. Kryptonite, magic, and Batman. That last one is more of a recent discovery, but I want to focus on the second one. Superman is susceptible to magic. It's a frequent deus ex machina in big event stories where they need to take Superman down a peg. It's what allows the bad guys to take possession of him at times. It's the only reason DC keeps trying to pit Superman against the big red cheese Captain Marvel. That makes Zatanna a very powerful asset. She can stop Superman by saying the word POTS. The original lineup of the Justice League of America was Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, The Flash, Green Lantern, and Martian Manhunter. For reasons we need not get into now, after the Crisis on Infinite Earths comic book event, the lineup was changed, and Wonder Woman was no longer a founding member. But nature abhors a vacuum, and DC replaced Wonder Woman with Black Canary, another female veteran member of the League. Now, you know I love me some Black Canary. She's the other subject of this podcast. But Dinah was never worthy of replacing Wonder Woman on the League. Probably nobody is. But what if DC had put Zatanna in that slot instead? Instead of Black Canary, make Zatanna one of the founding members of the Justice League. She's got the right kind of chromosomes, she's got the fishnets, and she's a legacy hero, as we'll see later in this episode, picking up the crime-busting gig from her father. But more so than Black Canary, Zatanna is an untapped powerhouse of mystical forces. Yeah, Black Canary has a sonic scream, and she's one of the ten best hand-to-hand fighters in the world, but you put her next to Flash, Green Lantern, and John Jones, and the Canary looks pretty pathetic. You put Zatanna next to them, though? Skeptics scoff at their own peril. In the animated Justice League series, Wonder Woman was back in the core lineup, but this time Aquaman was replaced by Hawkgirl. It's great having more female representation on the team, and believe me, I love Hawkgirl too. No kidding, don't be surprised if I'm doing a podcast on Hawkman and Hawkgirl two years from now. That's not an idle threat. The only problem is the cartoon traded for another female body that otherwise didn't bring anything really new to the table. Hawkgirl is another warrior woman, but she'll never be THE warrior woman that Wonder Woman is. The show played up their distinction by having Wonder Woman, rightly, approach conflict first with compassion and mercy, whereas Hawkgirl was just as savage as her namesake. I wish this distinction still existed, but in modern comics, cartoons, and what appears to be the future films, Wonder Woman is more of the savage, snarling beast on the battlefield rather than a goddess of truth. Why not put Zatanna on the team and change up the group's dynamic? In 2011, DC rewrote its in-story history again, this time replacing Martian Manhunter with former Team Titan Cyborg as the seventh member of the team. I get it, you want more diversity in your ranks, and Cyborg is a fascinating character with plenty of in-story potential if they ever put him front and center, which they didn't do until four years later. 
Meanwhile, Zatanna is slumming with the cast of Justice League Dark as John Constantine's perennially jilted ex-lover. Justice League Dark was usually a great book, and I'm a fan of those characters, but stranding Zatanna in that dark corner of the universe as an also-ran is as wasteful and degrading as putting Jean Jones on Stormwatch or Batman with the Outsiders. She deserves better. I haven't read every Zatanna story. I don't claim to be an expert. I'm still collecting some of the comics I plan to review on upcoming episodes this year. But with every new story I read, I find more about her that I love. And yes, more frustration too, because she has not been given her propers by DC. But hopefully, throughout the course of this podcast, we'll all see why she's so special. But you have to pay attention. You have to look closely. Otherwise, you'll miss the magic. I'll be back after this commercial break with a review of Zatanna's first adventure. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! They're not human! Everyone! They're here already! You're next! November 4th, 1988. Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species including the Dominators, the Kunz, the Danegarians, and the Durlins. And they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Melbourne. Hi, I'm Nicholas Prom, the host of Comic Reflections, a podcast devoted to Silver and Bronze Age comics. Join me and my spunky sidekicks, Jeff Barnhart, the crusty curmudgeon from Dogpatch USA, and Spencer Valadez, podcasting's very own Apache Chief as we discuss the grooviest comic books of yesteryear. You'll find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at comicreflections.wordpress.com. What are you waiting for? Tune in, turn on, and kick ass! Hawkman, Volume 1, Issue 4, is cover dated October-slash-November 1964. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the actual on-sale date was August 20th, 1964, and it cost a whopping 12 cents to buy. As was common of a lot of comics in the Silver Age, this issue of Hawkman featured two separate adventures of Hawkman and Hawkgirl. I'm only going to be reviewing the first story, as that is where Zatanna makes her debut. The story is titled The Girl Who Split in Two, written by Gardner Fox, with art by Murphy Anderson. Carter Hall, the curator of the Midway City Museum and secretly the winged warrior known as Hawkman, is having a weird day. First, the new guide of the museum's oriental wing comes in complaining that a new artifact, a rare Shang statue, was added to the exhibit without her knowledge. Right after that, 
A specialist hired to carbon date some of the museum's relics discovers an ancient Celtic cup that wasn't on his list. Carter has no idea who donated these artifacts to the museum, or how they were put on display without his knowledge. He shows the artifacts to his wife, Shira, alias Hawkgirl, who works as his assistant in the museum. Shira agrees that this is a mystery for Hawkman and Hawkgirl, which, okay, seems a little extreme for what could very well turn out to be a case of misplaced paperwork. Carter and Shira don their Hawkman and Hawkgirl costumes and split up to investigate the sources of the relics. Hawkman flies to Honan Province in China, where the Shang statue was believed to have originated in the lost city of Yin. As he flies over the city, a group of Mongolian bandits spot him and begin shooting at him. With the aerial grace of a true bird, Hawkman dodges the gunfire. He fans his wings over the dust to create a smokescreen, then drops down and beats up the nearest bandits. Three of them take refuge in one of the buildings and bar the door. Hawkman picks up a large statue of a dog and flies through the building where the last bandits are holed up. He smashes through the door with the statue, then kicks the stone dog into the bandits, taking them out of the fight. Whatever else Hawkman was hoping to find inside the building, the sight of a girl dressed in a tuxedo top with a bow tie and top hat and fishnet stockings covering her legs is quite a surprise. At first he thinks it's a statue of a girl, but realizes she's alive when she begins to speak in a bizarre language. I, I, zat, da, o, zat, I, ma, b, p, toga, wi, ma, a, ha, bo, t, b, nor. Hawkman decides that the mystery of this semi-catatonic girl is more pressing, so he tables the mystery of the Shang statue, which, again, could have been nothing more than a misplaced museum relic and shoddy invoicing. Meanwhile, across the world, Hawkgirl tracks the Celtic Cup to County Meath, Ireland, and of course there's a burned-down abbey that's also being robbed. The crooks, who assume that a woman with feathery wings flying through the sky must be an agent of Scotland Yard, open fire. Like Hawkman before, Hawkgirl flies into the abbey and takes out the crooks. Also, like Hawkman before, Hawkgirl finds a catatonic girl identical to the one her husband found in China. This girl, too, speaks in a weird language. M'ana turf ara st i u ther th he her f di o it mao. Hawk Girl turns the crooks over to the police, then she grabs the rigid girl and carries her up to the Hawk spaceship. Oh, yeah, if you didn't know, the Silver Age versions of Hawkman and Hawk Girl were space cops from the alien world of Thanagar. They have a spaceship in geosynchronous orbit over Earth and that ship is full of alien technology they can use to solve really any problem the writer can't get them out of when he's running out of pages. Hawkman meets his wife on the ship with his own copy of the Mystery Girl. Hmm. I guess they have a pretty healthy marriage if neither of them seemed surprised to find the other bringing a comatose girl onto their spaceship. Does that sort of thing happen often? Anyway... They write down the girl's gibberish and match the transcripts together to find out that each girl is speaking half a message. When put together, the speech says, I am Zatanna, daughter of Zatara. I must be put together with my other half-body to be normal. So Hawkman and Hawkgirl just sort of push the two girls together until they merge into one. Side note, I've tried doing this with twins before and it has never worked out for me. But it works for Carter and Shira. Once merged, Zatanna comes out of her trance and acts like a normal person. 
albeit one wearing a tuxedo top and fishnets. Mm. Zatanna spends the next couple pages explaining her story. Her father, Zatara, was a world-famous stage magician who dabbled in crime-fighting, because that's the sort of thing you did in the Golden Age. This isn't an original concept for the story. Zatara appeared in Action Comics No. 1 in 1938, the same issue that saw the debut of Superman. But Zatara's adventures stopped being published in the mid-1940s. Zatanna tells Hawkman and Hawkgirl that her father has gone missing. In his absence, she has taken up his gig as a touring magician while secretly fighting evildoers using her magic. She has legitimate magic powers, spells that she casts by speaking words in reverse. She's been searching for her father, and in her research and meditation, she came up with two leads. She knew her father was fighting an oriental llama in the city of Yin, and somebody named the Druid on the hill of Tara in Ireland. Zatanna attempted to use her magic to split herself in two so she could investigate both leads simultaneously. But she's still young, and her mastery of magic is not up to what her father's was. Splitting herself put her in a nearly catatonic state. The only thing she could do was use magic to send one relic from each location to the Midway City Museum. It's at this point that Hawkman and Hawkgirl ask the salient question, Why the Midway Museum of all places? Does Zatanna somehow know about the Hawks' secret civilian identities as Carter and Shira Hall? She avoids answering the question, telling them she will go on searching for Zatara, and the Hawks will go on recovering ancient artifacts. And that is the end of the story. I don't want to spend too much time talking about Hawkman and Hawkgirl. I certainly could. I love them. Seriously, someday I'll do a Hawkman podcast. But anyway... The first half of this story is a pretty typical Silver Age Hawkman adventure. And the thing about Hawkman in the Silver Age is that DC updated him for the science fiction readership by making him and Hawkgirl alien police officers who come to Earth to study our law enforcement tactics. And yeah, sometimes they fight aliens or other monsters, but beyond that, they were still very much Golden Age types of stories. Hawkman's costume looked basically the same. His adventures still dealt with archaeology and history. He had very Indiana Jones-style adventures while dressing like Conan. And despite having a spaceship, he still preferred archaic human weapons like axes and maces. It kind of cements the idea that this was the type of story you told with Hawkman. This was the niche the character filled. But that was all he could do. They didn't really update him for a new aesthetic, and so the book only lasted a couple of years before being cancelled. Meanwhile, the Silver Age Flash and Green Lantern skyrocketed those characters into new realms of popularity. But as I said, the first half of this issue is a pretty typical story for Carter and Shira Hall. Some kind of mystery leads them to ancient ruins in some exotic location. They use their wings and their muscles to beat up some bad guys, and that's basically it. But that's only the first chunk of this 13-page story. The last four pages are all Zatanna explaining her story. It's a lot of exposition for a one-off character, if she is only a one-off character. And to answer that question, we need to know a little more about the genesis of this story. I mentioned how the Hawkman and Hawkgirl in this story were updated Silver Age versions of the characters. If you're not familiar with the jargon of comics, the period of comic books published between the late 1930s and the early 1950s is considered the Golden Age. This is when the concept of the superhero really plowed its way into the public consciousness with the invention of Superman and Batman. 
Comics were churned out daily and consumed by millions of kids and adults, boys and girls, civilians and especially GIs serving overseas. Hawkman was created in 1940, though technically 1939, but don't worry about that, right at the beginning of the Golden Age. So were characters like the Flash, Green Lantern, the Atom, Black Canary. So was Zatara, the magician who debuted in the same book as Superman. But after World War II, the popularity of superhero comics took a sharp decrease. Other genres popped up, like romance, western, horror, and true comedy comics. A lot of superhero comics ceased publication, and the heroes simply went away. Superman and Batman survived, but their adventures were neutered in a way. Batman's stories became a lot sillier, lighter, and Superman's most challenging dilemmas were soap operatic dances with Lois Lane. In the late 1950s, Julius Schwartz became an editor at DC. Schwartz had a background in science fiction, and the vision to see that a new generation of kids were growing up after the war, a generation that wasn't yet too old for costumed superheroes. So Schwartz and his writers, Gardner Fox among them, grabbed established characters like The Flash, The Atom, Green Lantern, and Hawkman, and redressed them in sleeker, modern costumes. Well, except for Hawkman with origins based in contemporary science fiction rather than in magic. At last, in 1964, so the story goes, Schwartz asked Gardner Fox what other Golden Age heroes should they update for the new era. They settled on Zatara, whose adventures Fox had scripted in the 30s and 40s. But rather than simply bringing the magician back, Fox and Schwartz switched things up again by introducing a female version of Zatara, who had the same magic abilities based on backwards speak and the same style of dress, at least north of the equator. Rather than make Zatanna a completely separate character with no acknowledged connection to Zatara, Schwartz and Fox made her Zatara's daughter, and her story would be a quest to find the missing Zatara. It would have made for a simple tale, but here Zatanna's creators did something else wholly unique. Rather than conclude Zatanna's search for Zatara in one comic, Julie Schwartz opted to spread her journey throughout multiple comics he was editing. If her story began in Hawkman, it would continue in a future issue of The Atom, and then Detective Comics, and then still other books. This might, in fact, have been the first multi-title crossover event in comics. You're welcome, Civil War. All told, the saga of Zatanna's search for her father would be chronicled in six issues. Although, really, it was only five. One of them included is a cheat. I will explain that in episode five of this podcast. And these five or six comics were published over the course of three years. It must have taken an extraordinary amount of faith on the part of Schwartz and Fox that readers would remember Zatanna's fleeting appearances, or that they would follow her tale from one book to the next, or they didn't care. Readers could understand Chapter 4 of her story even if they were only collecting Green Lantern. That's what all of those editor's notes at the beginning of the comics were for. So, the introduction of Zatanna, while stealthy compared to other legends of the DC Universe, is quite notable and historic for a number of reasons. The first crossover in comics, perhaps. A character whose heroic journey would take three years to tell, and whose origin would not be explained for another 15 years after that. And finally, Zatanna might well be the very first legacy hero. Unlike the Silver Age versions of Flash, Green Lantern, Adam, and Hawkman, who were all completely reimagined characters with no ties to their Golden Age predecessors, Zatanna was the progeny of her Golden Age equivalent. Her character is informed by his history. 
This is a trope that would define many of DC's heroes for decades to come, but it started with her. DC had to manufacture a legacy storyline for Black Canary to coexist in two eras. Zatanna already had that going for her. Remember at the beginning when I said Zatanna should have been Wonder Woman's replacement in the post-Crisis Justice League? You think I'm wrong? The other point I made at the beginning is Zatanna has been underutilized by DC all of her publication life. Maybe... Maybe the stealth approach to her origin was too strong. Maybe it cemented her as a supporting player, someone not rich enough to carry her own book. Well, few women in comics have that power. But like I said, Zatanna's power is pretty great, and we'll see a lot more of it in coming episodes of Power of Fishnets. Before going, I did want to address the listener feedback for the first two episodes of this podcast. First up, the show received two five-star reviews on iTunes, which is awesome. The first is from Darren and Ruth Sutherland, hosts of the Trekker Talk and Warlord Worlds podcasts. The Sutherlands say, Another winner from Ryan Daly. The only reason we will forgive prolific podcaster Ryan Daly for ending his fun Flowers and Fishnets podcast is because he then immediately launched Power of Fishnets. Black Canary fans can breathe a sigh of relief, and Zatanna fans can rejoice. Thanks, Ryan. No, thank you very much, Darren and Ruth. Those of you listening, if you haven't checked out Trekker Talk or Warlord Worlds, you really should. They're great shows. The second review is from the Irredeemable Shag from Firestorm Fan and Fire and Water Podcast and the upcoming Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. Shag writes, Finally, a podcast for the niche market of guys who like girls and fishnets. That's nice. That's a little callback to the first review I wrote for Shag. He continues, if you like girls and fishnets even a little bit, then you'll love this podcast. Oh yeah, if you like Black Canary and Zatanna, you'll like it even more. On this show, they celebrate what works with these characters and don't pull any punches on the stories that just don't work. Always an engaging listen, the host, can't remember his name, rhymes with crying, has a real passion for the characters and his enthusiasm for the classic stories is infectious. Subscribe today. I'm pretty sure the bulk of that review is plagiarized from Shag's own review of my Secret Origins podcast, but I don't mind. After all, I wrote the exact same review for the Fire and Water podcast and the network feed four years later. I got a lot of great comments over on the Fire and Water website. I'm going to cherry-pick some of the comments. I'll try to mention everybody who left a comment, but might not read every word of what he or she says. Uh, the comments for episode one. This is where I reviewed Black Canary and Zatanna Bloodspell. Clinton Robison from Coffee and Comics blog said, Wonderful episode and excellent analysis as always. Glad to see the podcast off to a great start. Also glad to see your musical taste hasn't waned in the months leading up to this. I must admit, as soon as It's Not Unusual came on, I broke into my best or worst possible version of the Carlton dance. Thank goodness there's no video of this. Ah, nice. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, Great premiere episode, Ryan. Man, why don't I own this book? I'd read Paul Dini's transcription of a phone book, but this sounds like a lost episode of Justice League Unlimited. That feeling of not quite in continuity, but close enough is what DC should be doing with their characters. Just give up and give us classic versions of the characters like this. If the stories and art are strong like this book, no one will sweat the particulars anymore. We're used to continuity being non-existent and fleeting at best, so better to just go in this direction. 
Uh, Chris also mentioned that he really liked the art on the sample pages and that I blew his mind when I compared Black Canary to the actress Elizabeth Shue, a childhood crush of Chris's ever since adventures in babysitting. Rob Kelly from the Film and Water podcast said, I really like Quinones' art and the samples you showed made the book look pretty good. Is it too bad Dini never got to do the Canary Zatanna tabloid comic like he wanted? Still, a deluxe graphic novel is pretty good, especially for non-marquee characters like these. Yeah, the tabloid books Rob mentions are references to a series of oversized books written by Paul Dini and painted by Alex Ross. There was a whole series of them called Superman, Peace on Earth, Batman, War on Crime, Wonder Woman, Spirit of Truth, Shazam, Power of Hope, and JLA, Liberty and Justice. Paul Dini mentioned once, probably in jest, that their follow-up would be called Black Canary and Zatanna, Power of Fishnets. Hence the title of this podcast. Siskoid from the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast said, Great soundtrack throughout, but I especially liked the opening mix. Good work, Ryan. Thank you, Siskoid. Uh, the opening theme music for this show is my own composition, created in GarageBand with prepackaged loops and samples, and then, of course, borrowed audio from Batman the Animated Series and Justice League Unlimited. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog said, Listening to you talk, I have to agree that the multiple eras idea is grabbing. For someone new to these characters, it gives them a sense of history. For old schoolers, we revisit past incarnations that we love. The feeling I get is pre-crisis in spirit, although with some modern sensibilities. And that would suit me just fine. Me too, Ange. Paul Hicks from the podcast Waiting for Doom said, Welcome to podcasting, Ryan. I hope you stick with it. That one got a genuine laugh out loud for me the first time I read the comment. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Wonderful debut, Ryan, and I agree it's a great book. Perhaps a little too long and the logo is unattractive, but heck, talk about minor quibbles. We got a Z Dina OGN. A listener named Henry Santa wrote in. He had a lot of nice praise for the Bloodspell graphic novel and, more importantly, for the first episode of the podcast. Henry then mentioned, just to let you know, you and a bunch of other comic book podcasters and bloggers helped inspire me to start my own fan blog following my favorite Dick Grayson. I looked at Flowers and Fishnets a lot for the right way to get it done, so thank you. Well, thank you very, very much, Henry. It's really flattering to know that I inspired somebody to do something constructive for a change. Uh, and Henry's blog is called The Night Flyer. It's all about Dick Grayson, better known as Nightwing, or the original Robin. Check it out. Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks said, While I was initially sad about the ending of Flowers and Fishnets, and possibly feeling like I might have killed it with my appearance on the last episode, I have to say this is a great follow-up, and I'm glad you found your passion for this rather than let the podcast stay stuck in the old format and become a burden. You breeze by it, but I love the idea of nostalgia-era stories, ones that feel like what you used to read but can't actually be pinned down to any one specific continuity. Most of the DC animated films I love could actually be lumped in with this categorization. Yeah, Nathaniel, I wish we got more stories that fit this description. Maybe DC's rebirth this summer will be... I'm sorry, I couldn't even finish that sentence. It sounded so dumb. And finally, Diablo Frank from the Marvel Superheroes podcast said, I own a lot more Zatanna comics than Black Canary ones, so I'm looking forward to this new direction for the same podcast you've been doing for over a year and are fooling no one. That is a wonderfully encouraging and only slightly antagonistic sentiment from Frank. Actually, that describes most of Frank's sentiments. I also got a few encouraging comments on episode 2 where I covered Black Canary issues 6 and 7. 
I'm not going to read those now. Maybe I'll come back to them next episode. A ton of people have supported the show on Facebook and Twitter by liking the pages or sharing or favoriting or retweeting. Whatever you are doing to support the show, keep doing it. It's awesome. And especially if you're on Twitter, use the hashtags FWPodcasts and Spells and Yells. That is all for this episode. Come back in two weeks when I review Black Canary issue 8 and maybe issue 9 if it's out by then. And be here again in four weeks for the next chapter of Zatanna's Search. Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at BlackCanaryFan, or you can send an email to ourdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>